The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by High Echelon. You can find them at highechelloncpa.com. High Echelon PC is a nationwide CPA firm in Atlanta focused on a great client experience. High Echelon provides top quality work with total transparency, so clients always know exactly what they're getting. They believe accounting doesn't need to be complicated and that clients should always get the experience they deserve, which includes top-notch accounting, tax and payroll services, timely communication, complete data flow, and the best automation and security. Book a call or drop them a line at their website, highecheloncpa.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Elemental Altitude Training Center. You can find them at elementalaltitude.com. Elemental Altitude is Atlanta's best and only altitude training facility. At Elemental Altitude's state-of-the-art indoor training center, they are capable of simulating elevation up to 24,000 feet. Training in the thinner air and lack of oxygen prompts an increase in red blood cells, meaning that more oxygen can be delivered to your working muscles on race day. Athletes undertaking all sorts of goals from rugged mountain climbs to flat sea level marathons to Ironman triathlons train in the hypoxic environment created at Elemental Altitude. I trained there several times myself ahead of my successful race at the London Marathon in 2022. In addition, Elemental Altitude hosts a variety of physiological testing such as sweat testing, blood lactate testing, VO2 max testing, and a variety of metabolic testing which can tell you your resting metabolic rate and the types and amounts of fuel you're burning at different training and racing intensities. Drop them a line at info at elementalaltitude.com if you have questions or you want to set up an appointment. Again, their website is elementalaltitude.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel is an agency of experienced travel advisors who help you design the perfect trip. Blue Pineapple Travel advisors are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. They love to help people plan their travel, whether it's for a race, a family trip, a weekend getaway, or the trip of a lifetime. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the U.S. or abroad, Blue Pineapple Travel can plan exactly the trip that you want. Find them online at bluepineappletravel.com and see some of the great places that folks who have worked with Blue Pineapple Travel go on their Instagram, at bluepineappletravel. Finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance's mission is to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and to find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. Thanks to all of our sponsors who help us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, High Echelon, and Elemental Altitude Training Center. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys and my college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a mom to three girls and a CPA. We have with us today a very special guest that I'm super excited about. 
Brett Larner from Japan Running News. Welcome to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, I've been uh, waiting to be on this for a while now. <laughs> I'm glad that uh, glad that it's come to reality. And again, I should just say uh, I'm, I apologize in advance about my voice. Um, it uh, the last couple of weeks have been rough with seasonal allergies and um, being up at altitude. And uh, yeah, I'm just a little dry in the throat, as it were. So my apologies. Oh, no worries. No worries. Uh, don't let us uh, uh, lean on you too much to hurt your voice here because uh, yeah, no I, I know that you need it. Brett is the man behind Japan Running News, uh, which he describes as the world's window into elite Japanese distance running since 2007, which I think is a, a great description. Uh, he writes on a blog there, and he's also on Twitter at JRN Headlines and on Instagram at Japan Running News. It's actually through Instagram that we reached out to Brett, and he came on to the podcast so graciously. Um, he describes himself as a writer, which is including credits from Runner's World and Podium Runner. As a musician, I know you play the guitar and you play the koto as well, right? And you have a master's degree in that. Um, That's correct. Also, you can also find some of your Koto playing on Spotify. So I was listening to that this morning in preparation oh, yeah. for this uh, for this interview. Um, also running coach, also an agent. Uh, Brett was born in Canada, grew up in the United States, uh, ran cross country in high school and in college, went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and then moved to Japan in 1997. Now lives in Tokyo, but is not joining us from Tokyo, is joining us from Denver, because I know that you've been kind of on a swing here through the United States, uh, uh, going to the New York City half and a few other things. Um, yep. uh, we appreciate you making time for us amidst this busy business trip that you're on. I guess the most obvious question that stands out there from your bio is, is how'd you end up in Japan in 1997? I, uh, I originally went over for graduate school to do my uh, master's in performance on uh, the, the traditional Japanese instrument that I play, um, the koto. And um, I didn't really have any music background. You know, I wasn't a music student in college, but uh, Wesleyan had a really good music department and I was always really interested in music. So I decided right away to just go to like every concert that they put on uh, <laughs> yeah, just because everything looked interesting and I wanted to be exposed to new stuff. And uh, the first month that I was there, uh, there was a concert by a woman named Kazue Sawai, who is the greatest living performer on this instrument. And um, yeah, I didn't know anything about Japan really, or you know about uh, her or this music or or anything really. But uh, for whatever reason, it really spoke to me. And um, a former student of hers was a visiting artist in residence at the university, which was how the concert came about. So I went down the next day and talked to her and said, like, I love the concert and I want to start learning how to play this. Um, so uh, the next semester, I started taking lessons and progressed really quickly. Even though I didn't really have any musical background. And then my senior year at Wesleyan, um, Kazue Sawai and her husband, Tarao Sawai, who was like the other great modern player on this instrument, came to do an East Coast concert tour. And I got to play in their group on it. And um, they thought I had some potential. And they said, if, if you're interested, why don't you come and do a master's with us in Tokyo? Um, so after I graduated, I worked for two years to save up some cash. And then I went over in 97 um, to study with them. And yeah, so like it, if, if you just look at my background, it kind of looks like, you know, I'm kind of like the standard, like white guy Japanophile, um, but it's actually not really like that, you know, like all appearances aside, it's, it's, it's not like that. Um, it, I just happened to go to this concert and it happened to be Japanese. And uh, so I went over, you know, if she had been Korean or from Ghana or I don't know, Spain or something, you know, uh, whatever it was that had that had reacted, then maybe that's where I would be. I don't know. Um, but that was just kind of a coincidental thing that I ended up um, in Japan, really. Um, and it was going to be 
about three years, like two, three years initially. And then um, I finished my degree in three years and then um, had stayed for another year. Had an interesting opportunity where I was asked to set up a concert series at this really interesting art space. So um, I did that. And uh, I, I was I did a second master's in the Bay Area. Um, so during those two years, I was kind of going back and forth um, between the Bay Area and Tokyo. And, and uh, I thought about when I finished that degree, I thought about giving it a go in Vancouver. But then um, kind of inadvertently got, uh, I was doing some grant writing practice and inadvertently got two years of funding from the Canada Council for the Arts to go back to Japan, which I did. Um, and that was not really intentional, but uh, it was it was lucky. And then um, met my wife and one thing led to another and it's been like over 25 years now. Very cool. That's super cool. Um, while you were kind of getting settled in Japan after college, what was the the interplay between kind of running and journalism and getting more involved in music over there initially? And how did that, you know, how did that kind of stay with you? Obviously it's your, you know, uh, what we brought you on here to talk about, but what, yeah. what did that look like, I guess, over the three to five years after college and before you really decided to settle in Japan? Um, I didn't really have much of a journalistic background until like that didn't really um, start taking off until 2007. Uh, when I was in high school, I had an internship at uh, the local city newspaper writing music reviews. Um, so that was about it, um, like just writing rec record reviews. Uh, I was a runner, um, you know, I ran in high school and college and um, was, uh, I guess, my, my uh, that when I was my junior year of, when I was in my junior year of college, uh, no, I was in junior, that was sophomore year. Barcelona, sorry. Yeah, it seems a long time ago. Um, I watched the Barcelona Olympics uh, men's marathon. And uh, that was really uh, electrifying. Like it was a, this really intense uh, battle between um, the Korean athlete, uh, Hyungjo Wang and uh, the Japanese athlete, Koichi Morishita. And that really inspired me. And so a year later, my junior year, I did uh, my first marathon. And that was actually kind of like my only access point to Japanese running at all uh, <laughs> was that race. <laughs> That's um, a painful access point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but you know, like I, I watched like the all-time most brutal Olympic men's marathon. And I was like, I want to do that. That's what sure. <laughs> yeah. That looks like, that looks awesome. Yeah, I want to do that. Um, yeah, so I, I kept running after college. You know, I, I got into doing marathons. And then uh, when I went to Japan um, and started doing races there, I really quickly noticed that everybody was really good. Yeah. Like everyone was really good and uh that races were on tv like every weekend from you know, like october through march uh and i wasn't really used to that at all so i started like watching races and uh you know especially like the hakone ekiden which is the big uh, university men's race um that was just unbelievable to watch and so i got i, I was like i want to learn more so you know i was there studying music um and you know like working as a musician but i was a runner at the same time and just started doing my homework and, you know, learning about uh, who the people were, like what the, the what the, the structure of the running uh, culture, I guess you could say there is, and like what the different events were and the, the, all the interplay. And then, um, let's see, my wife, Mika, is uh, has been involved in journalism for a long time, um, especially in sports journalism. And uh, around the time of the Osaka World Championships in 2007, um, which was kind of like the heyday of the blog era. 
we had a conversation about the total absence of any information at all in English about any aspect of the Japanese running scene. And um, she said, you know, like, well, you know, you, you know what you're talking about, you know the stuff, so why don't you like start a start a blog, start a website and and start putting that some of that information out there. So I did. Um, just started uh, Japan Running News right before the Osaka World Champs. And then, um, you know, I didn't really go anywhere, of course, because it was just like this very small fringe blog with uh, a niche topic. But um, in November 2007, I did an article on this uh, race called the Agio City Half Marathon, which is uh, yeah a race in November in a little country town kind of outside Tokyo. And um, the universities that are going to run the Hakone Ekiden, um, which is January 2nd and 3rd, use this half marathon to kind of thin down the numbers of contenders to make their final team for Hakone. So like Hakone is, we'll probably end up talking more about that later, but it's the single biggest thing in Japan. Like it's the biggest sporting event in Japan. You can't, you can't understand what it is unless you see it, you know, really it's, it's so big. Um, but the format is basically the, the team, uh, each of the universities that competes in it has 10 runners who run about a half marathon distance each and six alternates. So that's like the final roster wow. is like 10 plus six. And most of the university teams have like 40 or 50 guys. So um, the, the coaches have to kind of thin down who's likely to make the, the final team. So they use this half marathon in November, they run everybody. And then they kind of sort the wheat from the chaff. And um, my uh, training partner, Jason, in those days, a, a, a Kiwi, um, and I ran it and in 2007. And he ran, I believe it was 67, 17, uh, which was a big PB for him. And after the race, when I saw him and he told me his time, I was like, wow, you know, like, did you make like top 10 or something? He's like, no, I was 286. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, so um, I wrote an article about that. And that was kind of like my first like hit article. Um, you know, like Let's Run was all over that about this like insanely deep uh, Japanese half marathon. And David Mani, um, who uh, was with the New York Roadrunners and does race results weekly, contacted me and he's like, I'm, I'm David Monty and I'm very familiar with all the races around the world and I've never heard of this half marathon. So these results are not actually true, right? Um, and I said, no, it's for real, right? And I sent him the uh, the, the official results and um, yeah. And then just after that, people started paying attention to the site because it was pretty obvious that there was some uh, amazing stuff going on in Japan that uh, was basically invisible to everybody except the Japanese. And so, yeah, again, like my whole thing, like I'm not actually a Japanophile, just, but it just, I was there and I could right, see that sure. there's lots and lots of amazing stuff happening. Yeah. And just for Japan being Japan, it's not something that they're going to push to the outside world, but it has real value and it's really amazing. And I just wanted to try to do something to try to make that like a little bit visible to other people outside Japan. It's awesome. visible now. <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. Well, it, it, visible now, but still not super visible, right? Visible I mean, to people like us. To yeah. us, yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah, if that's fair. Um, and and hopefully uh, through this conversation, we can make it just that much more visible, right? Um, yeah. uh, but but that's definitely kind of what we want to talk about. Um, I love that story about your friend running sixty-seven minutes and finishing, you know, almost three hundredth in in that half marathon there. And yeah. stories like that out of Japan are just legion. Um, and so, so just kind of, you know, to that point, um, everybody always talks about how, if you look at the top 1000 times all time in the marathon, Ethiopia and Kenya are first and second and Japan is third, sure. um, which is not necessarily what someone who from outside the running world would expect. 
Um, to qualify for the Olympic trials in Japan, men mm -hmm. have to either run under 208 or average under 210 for two marathons. Women have to run under 224 or under 228 for two marathons. Yeah. Um, and at this point, and this I got this from your Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. So at this point, you have 62 men and 29 women have met that standard. If that was the standard in the United States, we'd have less than 20 women and only six men as of right now, which is... And I don't really think those six men could run a 208 to 210 right now. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, right. I mean, th those are like race of their life type performances for yep. sure. Um, a lot of attention. We actually talked on this podcast uh, a couple of years ago when this happened, the Lake Biwa Marathon in February of 2021. It only yep. had 335 finishers. All but four of them were Japanese, but there were five men under 207, 15 under 208, 28 under 209, 42 under 210, which, mind you, only 21 U.S. men have ever broken 210. And so twice the number broke 210 in that one race. And 174 people under 220 in that marathon. Yeah, um, deepest marathon ever. Yep. Yeah, and, and and but that's just not that's not the only example. It's that that you just hear all the time. I mean, just on your blog only a couple of weeks ago, you talked about the National University Half Marathon. You had wow. eight people under 103, 48 people under 104, 117 people under 100, 105, 215 people under 106, which is basically five minute pace, uh, yeah. 318 people under 107, 435 under 108, 537 under 109, and a staggering 626 people running a half marathon in one race under 110 at 520 yeah. pace or better. Yeah, and like, and and the, and the thing to understand about that too is it's not just that race, right? That that's right. pretty normal. Uh, we have multiple races uh, the same season with completely different fields that have almost the same kind of results, right? Yeah, it, it's 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 incredible. It's amazing, and so so we definitely want to talk about kind of why that is, and you know, you mentioned the culture and the cultural differences and that sort of yeah. thing. That that's certainly what we went into, but maybe the best place to start is just to say, are there any similarities? <laughs> I mean, is there is there any sort of crossover you see from your time running in mm. Connecticut and in high school um, and, and the running that you see now? Um, well, I think like uh, overall, you know, the structure is is not that different. You know, you have, you know, high school, uh, collegiate, post-collegiate, um, those kinds of things, like all those structures are in place. Um, there are similarities in the calendar to some degree, you know, like there's an outdoor track season, um, and then there's like a heavy duty fall season for uh, for high school and college. Um, that's expressed a bit differently where in the States you would be focused on cross country and in Japan it's Ekiden season, the road relay season. Um, but you know, it, it, it fills the same part of the calendar. Sure. Um, so on, on, a, on a superficial level, there's all those kinds of similarities. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's more, I think uh, it's more in or more about the, the differences um, in like in areas of focus, especially. So let's talk about what, what do you see as maybe the biggest differences? If you had to pick just a few target areas um, mm -hmm. to talk about, to, you know, be able to explain to listeners why it is so different. What are those areas? Um, let's see. One difference is, uh, well, the, I guess the, if you want to say that the, the number one most glaringly obvious difference is uh Collegiate men focus on the half marathon distance, uh, whereas like in the States, they might be stay staying focused on like 1,500, 3,000, 5,000. Yeah. And that has you know, long lasting ramifications um, in terms of that, that, that if you go back, that really explains um, a lot about the, the marathon numbers that we were just talking sure. about. 
Um, and, you know, the flip side of that's also true, where um, if you look at all time lists for those kinds of distances, you know, 1,500, 3,000, 5,000, you know, there's the States is all over that and Japan is not. Sure. Um, so, you know, like um, some people well, have. Why, why is that? Well, I mean, in the United States, everybody wants to be a miler, right? But yeah. why is it that the focus is longer uh, in the collegiate system in Japan? Um, it, if, if you want to take a really long view of it, um, my, this, my personal uh, opinion on the, on the whole thing is it goes way back to uh, the first Olympics that uh, Japan competed in. Um, so Japan was kind of the first non-majority white country to compete in the Olympics and uh, the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. And its entire national team um, at Stockholm consisted of two athletes. Um, one was a sprinter and the other one was a marathoner. And uh, they came back to uh, Japan and um, were, especially the marathoner, um, Shizo Kanakuri, uh, was uh, very heavily involved in, um, I guess, kind of proselytizing the Olympics and setting up infrastructure to develop people within their disciplines. And so um, Kanaguri was really, his, his idea was if we have college kids doing, you know, like they didn't really have the concept of a half marathon maybe at that point, but doing that kind of distance, that's going to make it an easy bridge to producing Olympic marathoners. And so right from day one, you know, right from like the very first Olympics that we had a marathoner coming back and saying, this is how we're going to develop marathoners. And that system developed into like the Hakone Ekiden, which is, uh, which has come up several times. Um, and it's, the, like, as I said, the most massive, massively popular sporting event in Japan now. And uh, like uh, 65 million people watch the the two-day broadcast at some point. Um, it has like, for a 15-hour broadcast over two days, it has average viewership ratings of over 30%. And, wow. you know, and over 65 million is over half the population of Japan watches it at some point. Um, so it's unbelievably prestigious. And so high school kids, you know, junior high school kids, elementary school kids watch it on TV and they're like, I want to do that. Cool. Yeah. And so that's where the prestige is. And nobody cares about the mile. Nobody, nobody. Okay. Cares about the um, there's no prestige. And, um, you know, Japan has good sprinting as well. Um, it's, it, you know, multiple people under 10 seconds now. Um, it's, it's relay team is almost always a contender for medals at the world level. So um, like those are the two greatest areas of strength. And you can just walk that right back historically to the 1912 Olympics, you know, like those two guys came back. If one of them had been a miler, maybe he'd come back and mile. mile development infrastructure, you know, and there'd be prestige for the mile, but it didn't happen. And so there's that gap there. And I think obviously like the mile has long, you know, similar historical reasons for popularity in the States, middle distance and that kind of thing. And there's an infrastructure there. Um, the, uh, you know, there, there are, people who have certainly have potential in middle distance you know there there are like high school kids running 337 and that kind of thing um but the infrastructure and the prestige are not really them they're not really there for them to uh to develop that and they get pushed to longer distances because that's where the career is going to be right right um so you know some people say you know like oh it's because you know like asians don't have the right kind of build or whatever to uh, to handle the balance of you know speed and, and and endurance that you need in middle distance but you know i think like in the case of Japan, at least, there's like very, very clear historical uh, reasons for the infrastructure being where it is. And you would have to kind of uh, eliminate all of that in order to make an assessment about, I think, the the 
biological aptitude. So I, I always hate seeing that kind of stuff because people who aren't familiar with the whole historical reason for all of this uh, make those kinds of statements, and it's obviously nonsense, you know. Um, well, it's it's nonsense too because if you look at like the greatest eight hundred meter runners of all time, if you look like David Rudisha and Sebastian Coe, I mean, those guys look like marathoners, <laughs> you know. So 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 you can't say that that oh, there's this particular build that 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 Japanese people have more of, and that means they're better at the marathon. Um, right, right, yeah, yeah. No, the um, historical reasons are far more compelling. Yeah, yeah. And I think like the, the million dollar question is uh, what would happen if you took the top five high school 1500 meter kids from Japan and sent them all off to the NCAA? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure Japan's middle distance numbers would look a lot better in that case. And same thing if you took like the top five high school cross country runners from the States and sent them to one of the big Hakone schools in Japan for university, American marathoning would probably look a lot, a lot different. Um, so there's just, there's very clear historical and like infrastructure uh, reasons for the way things are right now. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the Hakone Ikigen, let's, let's sure. talk about that just a little bit. Um, sure. It's, it's the Super Bowl of, of Japan sports, um, not just of Japan running, but like you said, more than half of the households actually turn it on and watch it. Um, yep. and, and in any given time, a third of the households have it on. Right. Yep. Um, and, and, this is going to be a really non-specific question, but mm -hmm. what's that like? I mean, what what's it like to to live in a country where distance running, long distance running, like a, a relay that is 130 miles long, what's it like for that to be the number one sport? I mean, how does it feel? Because here we feel so fringe, right? We feel mm -hmm. like such outcasts as distance mm -hmm. runners. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if we can get like any coverage at all on some random website for six miles of a marathon we're like mm -hmm. giddy mm -hmm. i mean what, what what's it like there to actually have such a such a, a major race be a central focus of of sports media that's oh, incredible really i mean it, it that's as i said like when i first went to japan i didn't really know anything about it and i was turning on the tv on weekends and seeing races all the time <laughs> um it, it, it's amazing it's just it's it, it it's uh it's like something from another world really um and like Hakone in particular is just a cultural institution. Like everybody watches it. All the guys, like college kids and that, like they're all the coaches, they're all household names. Um, there's a Hakone Ekiden Museum, you know, um, along with the TV audiences, millions of people turn out along the course to watch, like literally millions of people turn out. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really special. Um, uh, marathons as well, you know, like the marathons, the, the TV broadcasts for, you know, Tokyo or Fukuoka or whatever, get big ratings as well um it's just people respect i mean I, I don't know if i would say overall distance running is like the number one spectator sport i would say it's one of the big three um along with like baseball and soccer but the hakone ekiden has the highest tv ratings of any sporting broadcast in the year and it's the number every year it's the number two television ratings of anything there's a, a new year's eve music show that's always the, the number one most watched <laughs> but then uh, hakone is number two and you know like it's just amazing. I, I, I've been there long enough that I just kind of take it for granted now in a way. But um, yeah, when you step back and think about it, it's, it's amazing, right? It's yeah. just like, it's it, it, it is. And, everybody and I, loves watching college kids racing 10 back-to-back -back half marathons. You know, it's, you, you could, you could stop any random person on the street and say like, how long is a marathon? And they'll say 42.195 kilometers immediately. 
You Nobody could, here knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you could stop anybody on the street and like, who is the head coach of the winning team at Hakone uh, Akiden this year? And they'd be like, Hiroaki Oyagi, of course. Like it just, it's household, you know? Everybody knows it. Everybody respects it. They enjoy watching it. It's, it's, That's incredible. Yeah, it's like an that, alien world. Yeah. I, I like what you said about how that has an impact on young people too, because they see mm. it and they're like, okay, I'm athletic. I have some ability. Um, mm. I Therefore, I want to be a distance runner, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. In the United States... A lot of times, and, and this is true for both of the people that are hosting this podcast, both Michelle and me, um, mm. we did other sports first. And then while getting in shape for those other sports, we found that we actually really enjoyed running. And so, so we ended up gravitating towards running, right? Yeah, that's kind um, of my, that's my background too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it sounds like it's, it's sort of the opposite in Japan that people, they try running first and maybe if they can't do running, then, then maybe they'll become a soccer player or, or something yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, I, you mentioned the the miracle at Lake Biwa, that super deep uh, Lake Biwa 2021 20, earlier. Um, I wrote uh, a kind of analysis of that for Outside uh, mm-hmm. after that and talked about that aspect of, of things that um, part of the, the whole infrastructure that's been built up over the last century in Japan surrounding marathon success um, is 100% the TV broadcast of the races um, that... Um, you know, it's just like soccer uh, or, you know, yeah. football, let's say in like South America or whatever, you know, it's like baseball anywhere else. You know, like you, you kids are, are watching sure. the races and they're like, yeah, that's cool. That's what I want to do. That's going to be yeah. me. But yeah. And um, that just generates big numbers, big participation numbers. Um, and uh, it's all kind of like a, the, the the way that it's the, the Japanese system is often explained is like a pyramid where, um on the bottom, you've got massive participation at the high school level. And then the best kids from that will go on to like the best universities um, and run in Hakone or, you know, women will go to like the uh, some of the other really good universities. Um, then the best of those will go on to the corporate team system, which is kind of Japan's post-collegiate semi-pro system. And then the best people from that will become marathoners and the best marathoners from that will become the Olympians, uh, which is kind of like the, the ultimate goal in Japan. They really, really care about the Olympics. Um, and even the world championships. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's just this whole thing that uh, you've got this TV broadcast driving the base level of the uh, of the pyramid, and that generates the numbers that help sustain the further up the food chain, as it were. Um, yeah. Like, if, if you want to talk about TV broadcasts, like, can you believe this? So the National High School Ekiden um, is broadcast live nationwide and commercial free. Uh, on, on the national broadcast, and the, and they do the girls race and the boys race back to back. I think we paid like thirty dollars to watch uh, Nike and New Balance high schoolers run. And, indoor and, and there were commercials, ago. probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how, what is the high school you could in? What's the distance? Um, for girls, it's uh, half marathon uh, broken up into I want to say six stages. I'd have to check. Um, I think it's six. Uh, the boys run marathon distance, and I think it's divided into eight stages. Okay. Um, I have I had I have to check on the number of stages in each of those, but yeah, it's a half marathon distance subdivided for girls and a marathon distance subdivided for boys. Gotcha. Um, I think the longest stage boys run is 10k. Uh, the first stage is 10k. I don't remember what the longest stage girls do is. Uh, probably like five or six k. I think I don't I don't think there's an eight k stage. Gotcha. Um, Piggybacking on the idea of like the pyramid scheme, would you say that, and I'll explain why I'm asking this, I guess I'm wondering, would you say that running in Japan is like a mass participation sport? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll just preface this by saying that um, 
one of the two of us is dying to run the Tokyo Marathon and the other person just listens to all the podcasts about it. So in my, I'm a student of the Tokyo Marathon because I need to be prepared for when George actually gets to go run it. But what I hear- I was supposed to run it in 2020, Brett. Okay. Maybe 21, 22, you know, every year since. But, um, But Brett, what I hear all the time from podcast recaps is people are in Tokyo. It's super clean. They're there for this mass marathon. They, they're they there for a week or two. They don't see anybody ever running in Japan. Like there's no hobby joggers. People aren't running through downtown like they are, you know, Central Park in New York City. But we know that like running is is massive in Japan. Um, so where does that come in terms of like, would you say it's a mass participation sport or would you say that it's just more of an elite sport? I, I would say it sounds like uh, the people saying that are in the wrong city, maybe, but, <laughs> or, or in <laughs> parts of the city because there are runners everywhere. Okay. Yeah, I've, yeah. Tokyo is a massive like, running city. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, all the parks are packed with runners constantly. Um, if you go to the Imperial Palace, uh, it's the, the outer perimeter is exactly 5K and um, they have distances marked you know, for, for the runners who go there. Um, I think like every 200 meters or something and all kinds of signs about, you know, only, please only run counterclockwise. Don't run clockwise on the loop and watch out for walkers because this is a public sidewalk. And that, um, no, I mean, it's, it's massive participation. Like literally there are runners everywhere in the city. Um, uh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, uh, I would say like the, the foundation of, the Tokyo Marathon in 2007 had a really transformational effect on um, the mass participation running. So um, if you wanted to make kind of like a broad stereotype of Japanese people, it's that like if they have a hobby or something that they're into, they are all in. Like they're very serious about whatever they do. And yeah, we love stereotyping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so like prior Prior to the Tokyo Marathon starting up in 2007, um, if you were not a pro or college runner or something, if you ran just as, as an amateur, sure. you're super serious. So like I said, like when I when I first went to Japan, I noticed like everybody in, in the amateur races was really good. Um, yeah. so everybody was super serious. And even if they were only running like four hours or something, they were dead serious and had like all the right kit and everything. Very, very serious <laughs> about it. But um, the the... The result of that was the races that were uh, there for the mass participation runner were not that big, um, just because the average person who like uh, maybe wanted to take up jogging or something didn't really feel serious enough to have access to that. So um, the Honolulu Marathon kind of served uh, as the outlet for that. That was like the thing. If you were a runner, you were going to go do the Honolulu Marathon at some point, or if you yeah. wanted to or just have like that bucket list experience of running you'd go to Honolulu and the Tokyo Marathon in 2007 changed all of that um it was like the first time that they did a big mass participation marathon through um you know the the central streets of the city and um people came out to watch and they're like yeah I want to do that too and uh the numbers uh the, the, the participation numbers just shot up really quickly um all the other cities in Japan followed Tokyo's lead and started you know, putting in big mass participation uh, races. Um, I did an article a few years back, uh, when would it have been 2015 or 2016 maybe, um, looking at the marathon participation in Japan. And uh, at that point, 
the world's number one uh, country in terms of numbers of people completing a marathon had always been the U.S. And sometime it was like, I want to say 2015, but more people in Japan finished a marathon than the U.S. for the first time. Um, and Japan had far and away the largest number of 10,000 finisher plus marathons. So like relatively big marathons. Um, and it's just like grown and grown and grown. Um, so the, the, the pandemic obviously has had a bit of an impact on that, but, um, there are still like big races everywhere, runners everywhere. Um, it's kind of made it more acceptable, you know, the, the Tokyo marathon and the, the effect of that made it more acceptable to, uh, be doing running as an amateur without having to be really good or really serious yeah, at sure. level. Um, and yeah. So it was, it was, it was kind of liberating in a way. I would say. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what role does, does the government play and does like a national federation play? Um, right. I know that you just mentioned now a bucket list run for me in my life is going to be to do that 5k loop around the Imperial palace, by <laughs> the way, awesome. like without a doubt. Um, uh, for sure. But, and then I know that you also live near a public track, the large, one of the largest public tracks in Tokyo. Um, are there a lot of public tracks and is there a lot of like public infrastructure that supports running? Um, and is that through the government? Is that through a national federation? Um, Um, there, there actually are very, very few public tracks, um, in Tokyo. Um, I, I live across the street from Yoyogi park, which is kind of one of the big central parks in Tokyo. And there's a 400 meter track in the park. Um, and it's really the only one in central uh, Tokyo that's open to the public. Um, if you go into the suburbs, there are a few more, but, uh, there's definitely a shortage of track facilities, I would say. Um, but, uh, lots of places to run, uh, apart from that. Um, in terms of the federation, um, you know, historically it's been more geared toward um, e- elite racing. I would say um, at, at all age levels, you know, like from from junior high school up, um, kind of like cultivating uh, the, the top tier. But that as kind of another consequence of uh, the the transformation that happened after the Tokyo Marathon. Um, they kind of realized that if you want to be cynical, I guess you could say they realized that there was a lot of money to be made by um, having the more average people signing up for uh, for federation registrations. So, um, you know, like with the Tokyo Marathon, they they set up a block. Uh, the, the front starting block uh, was for people who were federation registered, independent of how fast you were. So like you could have somebody who's like a six hour marathoner who signed up for uh, JAF registration starting in the first block behind the elites. Mm-hmm. And then the B block, there could be like a 230 guy who didn't have federation registration. So that that was kind of uh, an incentive to drive their, uh, to drive registration for the federation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, that's, that's kind of a, a cynical way of looking at it maybe, but um, the, the positive that came out of that was uh, they have, done more to uh, kind of have developmental programs uh, towards kids and like the average person and uh, trying to make running more of a part of part of lifestyle of more people, I think. Very good. Um, There's a, there's a company called uh, Arby's um, that. uh, Arby's? Like the restaurant? No, 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 it's the same, but it's written like R-B-I-E-S. Okay. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's the yeah. same, but very different. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they they have, uh, it started off as a, a very amateur company uh, in the 80s, just run by a husband and wife. Um, but uh, they set up uh, kind of uh, the first running magazine that covered, uh, that was kind of geared towards um the average person, not just elite. There's a lot of like really hardcore elite running magazines in Japan and that, but the, the, this, the, their magazine runners, I mean, it, it's not like runner's world exactly, um, but uh, they set that up and they set up the first uh, online race entry system as well. And uh, it's really grown and they have a lot of control over like all the aspects of mass participation running in Japan. And, um, you know, they, they, have done a lot of they, they come up with a lot of really cool programs to try to encourage the average person so um with uh with the explosion of mass participation running since 2007 since they had the original online entry system in place they've made a lot of cash <laughs> like yeah, I bet. Bad, bad 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 cash um over the over the last 15 years and uh they, some of the, the the ways that they've used that, like in in, in good ways, um, they set up this thing called the the MCC, the Marathon Challenge Cup, where um, any uh, client race in Japan, like any client marathon that uses their online entry system, um, if a, a runner breaks the course record there, they get a three thousand dollar bonus. Um, if you uh, if you run a PB, regardless of what it is, in one of the MCC member series thing then they publicize that and uh they have uh national uh rankings and like national awards for people who run pbs uh in the mcc series so like really kind of like recognizing giving that kind of like elite style recognition to the average uh hard working runner you know people who are successful regardless of their level so it's it's pretty cool like i i have mixed feelings about a lot of aspects of their business uh but uh (laughs) What 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 they're doing with that is really innovative and magical in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, cool. So Very good. just everything about Japan and Japan running seems kind of like really systemized and scalable. Does mm-hmm. training work the same way? Like we we have a little bit of information about you know how Japanese runners train. Like Yoshida published the training, just kind of like Killian Jornet, Jornet and Niels and mm-hmm. um. But what about like? less sophisticated you know i just run hard all the time i only run on pavement like is there something that you would consider like a japanese training method so to speak um i feel like right now american middle distance is obsessed with like double thresholds right like yeah. everyone but there's something about japan the, the, that the norwegian great longevity yeah. what the norwegian method the, the yeah the norwegian method yeah. right it's not even ours <laughs> so but there's something about japan year after year i mean like just <clears throat> crazy times in the, in the distance races. So is there like a quantifiable Japanese training method or no, not at all? Um, yeah, I think like the, the stereotype of, uh, Japanese training is just that the meat grinder, high mileage meat grinder, um, like running loads and loads and loads and loads of mileage. Um, and you know, that certainly worked back in the day. Um, uh, but I would say at this point, there was, there was a, a period where Japan kind of fell behind and um, because that was, the that was? Uh, just because like the, the high mileage approach worked in terms of getting people to like 
the 208, 209 level. And there was a time when that was enough to make Japan number one in the world in the marathon. Sure. Unquestionably, there was a, that period in history. And, um, but it's not sustainable. And then the rest, yeah, the rest of the world kind of surpassed that. Um, you know, like Africans and like other, other countries started uh, bringing in new ideas and other approaches and kind of surpassed where Japan was. And um, part of the problem with why it took a while to turn that around is, uh, you know, Japanese society is, there's, there's a very clear hierarchy at all time. And there's a lot of deference to older people. And um, so within like the, the team organizations, um, you know, there'd be like the head coach and then maybe there's like an executive head coach who was the former head coach who's older. And they kind of have the, the final say over what the training is going to be. And so there was what worked back in like the 80s or in the 70s or the 80s. Um, you know, those people, those athletes had those training methods and then they became changes. Yeah. And then they became the executive head coach and sure. the younger coaches under them couldn't bring in newer ideas. And so they were kind of like stuck in a rut for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, you mentioned Yuya Yoshida, you know, like uh, yeah. if you look at um, the stuff he published, uh, obviously he's got different ideas about that. And um, younger coaches now have a lot more um, just through the natural like process of time have more um, more freedom to uh, try to bring in new ideas and new approaches. And, you know, they're very uh very interested in studying what works elsewhere and then trying to uh, take that and apply it to their own model. So I think like the, the, the stereotype of just grinding out, you know, massive mileage um, is not as true as it used to be. I mean, I, I think the mileage levels are still probably higher than what, uh, you know, the average American might be used to, but um, well, we have Cam Levin's running like 180 miles per week. So maybe yeah, like yeah, where yeah. do the Japanese fall? Like 130, 140? You think um, there's an average it, or? It, it kind of depends um, on the time of the year. So like this, the traditionally the summer is mileage season. Um, everybody goes up to Hokkaido, the, the northernmost island, because it's relatively cool. Okay. And it runs loads and loads and loads of mileage. Um, so kind of like. The baseline, I would say, for the kind of elite runners, um, they say everything in terms of uh, kilometers per month. So it's like a thousand kilometers a month. Uh, so what's that? 620 miles? <laughs> yeah, so like over 30K a day. Uh, yeah. So yeah. 100, 150 miles a week. Yeah, yeah around there. Figured. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like um, that's that's the norm for a lot of marathoners. Um the college guys would do that kind of mileage uh, in the summer in preparation for Hakone. Um, wow. So they, you know, the, the, if you look at the if you look at the calendar, the overall flow of the year. Um, so the fiscal and academic year starts April first and runs through the end of March. So you've got starting in April, you've got outdoor track season for a few months, and then everybody goes to Hokkaido and does loads and loads of mileage for the uh, for the fall season. Um, fall season is Ekiden season, um, which basically runs until early. Uh, early January and then January, February and March are kind of free season where people can do what uh, is most relevant to like where they are in their careers or their interests. So some people might do marathons. That's like the, 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 the core of the marathon season in Japan, the January through March. Um, some people might focus more on half marathons, um, cross country, like there's not much cross country in Japan, but the big cross country races are all in that window too. And then it all starts over in April. Um, so yeah, the mileage, peak mileage is is really done mostly in the summer. I, I love how that totally explains why the Tokyo Marathon is around March 1st. 
yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so the running world in general um, yeah. has has definitely been impacted by by super shoes. And, yeah. and I was thinking about it as you were talking about like the meat grinder and the high mileage and all that sort yeah. of thing. And mm-hmm. and one of the purported benefits of super shoes is that they take some of the stress off of you and, and mm-hmm. enable you to train harder and recover more quickly. Um, we talk about super shoes all the time on this podcast. Um, we're bound to, right? Um, but I was wondering, has that influenced the way that they train? Um, has super shoes like m- penetrated the Japanese market really heavily? Oh, yeah. And and are they as obsessed with super shoes as we are? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Japan was like arguably the first real mass adopter of, uh, of the super shoes um, and uh, recognized very early on that the, I, I think like Ryan Hall last year, I think it was, I want to say around the time of Boston last year, got a, a lot of attention for saying that the, the primary benefit of the shoes was um, that uh, they let you do harder training without getting hurt and like enabled recovery. And that, that's where the primary benefit mm-hmm. came. But actually over a year before that, um, Hiroaki Oyagi, who's the the coach of the team that won the Hakone Ekiden this year, said exactly the same thing. I think I quoted it, quoted him in that article I wrote after Lake Biwa in, mm. in outside. And he said, you know, you you do get a, a boost in the race from wearing the shoes, but the primary benefit is that you can wear them in training and not get hurt and recover quicker and do successfully get through workouts that previous generations couldn't do. And so like the younger guys who are running in those now can do these workouts that great runners they know from the past could never finish. And that's going to result in better confidence. You know, like we can do this you know, much stronger uh, sense of um, self and ability and um, it just also do higher quality workouts and run better. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's a massive, uh, a massive part of like what we see now. It's, it's not, I don't think it's the only explanation of uh, the kind of like massive numbers of sub 210 marathoners that we regularly see now. Um, I wrote an article on JRN, uh, one is probably like, again, like 2016, maybe um, where I looked, I did like a 20 year study of the relationship between the quality of the Hakone Ekiden teams and the uh, the level of marathoning like in about a four to five year span later that was and a cool show, article i read it yeah and, and i basically showed there's a direct correlation there and i successfully predicted in that article that within the next two yeah. to three years we're going to see a massive explosion of depth and quality and it and, and happened and, you know shoes shoes weren't on the scene at that point really um so it's not just the shoes like this was coming anyways um i think uh one one other thing that that i've watching the last year or two um, that I've come to believe about the shoes is um, we've seen some really young Japanese runners running really amazingly. Um, like uh, there was one, uh, one college runner, uh, uh, Seira Fua, uh, who uh, she runs for Takashoka University and her freshman year of, uh, of college, she ran an Ekiden road stage, uh, 10K Ekiden road stage, like age 18 and ran under 31 minutes and then ran a track 10,000 just to see what she could do and ran the all-time number two Japanese time. I think she ran like 30, 39 or 30, 40. Wow. Um, and what, what, I, what I felt most about it was she looks different, hmm. right? Like just something's different the way she runs. Like, like before, her mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. It looks yeah. different. Right. And so I, I've started watching some of the, the really good 
juniors that we have coming up now and it's the same like there are lots and lots of kids like there was um sherry drury this uh junior high school girl who ran uh at the national women's Equity in january ran an absolutely unbelievable stage like uh it was pretty close it was like low nine minutes for 3k and um her first k was like 255 or something and wow <laughs> wait like the way she looked was just unbelievable the form and everything and so like kind of what Long story short, um, what I'm kind of coming to believe about the super shoes is that like up to this point, uh, what we've seen with the super shoes is only athletes who have transitioned from the previous generation of shoes to the super shoes, right? Um, we're seeing people who had to go through a transition at some point. But what we're seeing right now with the juniors in Japan is like these are kids who started in these shoes. Yeah, that's so, fascinating. They, they don't have any, they've never known anything different. They've had that effect from day one and they're running differently. Like they're physically running differently. They look different. It looks different from somebody who's transitioned from previous shoes. And it's not just one or two, like there are lots and lots of people like this. And so I think we're really just seeing the beginning of what's going to happen with the shoes. I think like uh, it's really going to have in the next generation, like an even bigger effect. Wow. That's, I, I don't have hard data for it, but they just like the last year or two watching all these like really, really amazing runs from junior runners. They just, they look different. It doesn't, it, it's kind of intangible, but yeah, just the form the stride, everything looks different from anybody, like any other Japanese runner I've seen. And it's not just one, like there's like multiple people like this. And so that's it. It's just kind of like my hypothesis right now is like, it's fundamentally changing physically how people are, are running and the kids who have only known that are going to be different. Got it. Um, that's not just in Japan. I think it's going to be worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. But you might be the first to notice it. And then maybe people hear about it here first and we can give you all the credit. Right. <laughs> um, okay. No, seriously. So when these kids come up and then they go through college, the one thing I'm curious about is what, it, what does it look like in Japan to go from being a collegiate runner to a professional runner? Because there's plenty of information about the chaos that ensues here in America when people, you know, leave the NCAA and try to find a coach or a team or stay with a college coach. Do they need to have a sponsor and they, you know, the shoe has to match the apparel and the group. And it's just, it's a bit of chaos right now. And it's really hard to, to transition from college to being a professional. So what does that look like in Japan? Like, have you guys figured that out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they have a really good system. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about some of the pros and cons of it. But um, one of the things that really sets Japan apart is they have what's called the Jitsugodan system, which is corporate teams. Um, and that's the, the primary post-collegiate uh, option. And in, especially on the women's side, even a lot of people will go into it straight out of high school. Um, the, so it's not just post-collegiate, it could be post-high school. Uh, but essentially what you have is um, corporations will sponsor a group of runners. Um, and the, the primary focus is on doing the national championship Ekiden. Um, so the road relays, because those have high TV ratings and whatnot, and um, the marathoners and, you know, track runners and that would be members of those teams. So they kind of have the obligation to do these road relays, but uh, kind of working around that, they also would be doing marathons and such. So um, the corporate teams, you know, would typically have anywhere from about eight to 20 runners um, and they get uh, paid a salary. Um, they're considered company employees, not like sponsored athletes. So they get uh, they get salaries, um, all the benefits of being an employee with a major corporation. Um, their primary job, <laughs> their primary job is to run. Um, depending on like the team, 
and the company, they might have uh, some work obligations. So, you know, they have like an easy desk job for, uh, for like two or three hours a day. Um, they might, uh, you know, work in a factory at some of them. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's pretty nominal. The actual work commitment and their primary job is, is really to run. And, um, you know, they get, uh, uh, a lot of the companies have team dorms, so they get housing, uh, there's coaching staff, um, all the physio and medical staff um, in-house. Uh, travel to all the races is paid and uh, it really uh, allows a large number of people to have very stable post-collegiate careers um, so it's kind of like I said like, like the pyramid before where you have like the, the very healthy base and driving numbers up this is like this system enables large numbers at that level of the pyramid and um, so yeah compared to the U.S. system of, uh, of the more kind of like individual sponsorship sure uh, it's definitely always uh, allowed more people to have careers. Um, and it's a great thing. Um, the, it, it's, it's not, it's not the ideal. Uh, there's certainly like um, minuses to it where um, the, uh, the focus typically, like if you have a, an Ekiden team, um, a successful Ekiden team is one that has a high average level, not just one really good runner and a bunch of like B team people. Um, and so the the coaching focus has typically been on developing a high average level. And the, the, so the flip side of that is the most talented people have historically maybe not gotten the kind of um, individual focus that they would need to become medalists or like really internationally competitive. Hmm. And I think that's a big part of what explains, you know, like why Japan has such incredible depth in the marathon, but never wins medals um, anymore, you know? Um, but uh yeah, so I, I think that um, there's less uh, individual freedom in decision making about what races you want to do um, when you're on a corporate team, uh, because you have to kind of take the coach's wishes into account um, in relation to like what the company's motivations are and what, uh, the, you know, what the company wants the most. Um, so that's, you know, the Fukuoka International Marathon in Japan um, is, has historically been at the beginning of December. And uh, um, that's an elite men only marathon. Uh, it's like historically like one of the, the world's great marathons. And the corporate men's national Ekiden championships are on January 1st. So four weeks later. And just with the level things I've gotten to, um, it has made Fukuoka kind of a difficult choice for a lot of people because they, they are obligated to run the national championship. championship four weeks later. Four weeks sure. later. Yeah. So people kind of stopped going to it and instead running, you know, like Tokyo, Lake Biwa, um, those kinds of races, I mean, the women's races also, uh, there's no longer a top level women's race in the fall season. Um, they're all after January 1st. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that kind of conflict. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I think like on net, it's a really good system that, uh, that does allow a lot of people to have careers. Did the best of the best go eventually from that corporate team system to more of an individualized sponsorship coach athlete relationship or not really? Um, that's a pretty recent development. Um, like the, uh, you know, Suguru Osako. Uh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. 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 He was, um, he, he wasn't really the, <clears throat> sorry. He wasn't the the very first uh, to, to try to do that, but he was the first one to really have a lot of success uh, with going outside uh, the corporate model. Um and that certainly inspired more people to try to do that. And um, there was also a couple of years ago, there was a federal government or national government uh, antitrust investigation of the corporate team system of like the corporate federation. 
and the kind of they they had rules involving um if an athlete was unhappy at their team and wanted to transfer to another team they had to get the permission of their current team in, to release them from their contract and so um teams could just say no you can't you sure. can't transfer. you're stuck here and there was a, a lawsuit involved with that an investigation and they had to change a bunch of the rules and so um the the outcome of that there's been kind of like good and bad outcomes of that um the the good outcome is people have more flexibility for trying to do like an osako type model within the context of the corporate team system so like remaining with the corporate team but having freedom to operate essentially as an independent pro, pro runner and just like uh not actually training with the team you know they just uh, will come for the ekiden and wear the the uniform in the ekiden um as kind of like almost like a mercenary, but are effectively like <laughs> operating as an independent pro outside of that. And so that's that's growing a lot right now. Um, the kind of bad outcome of that antitrust uh, investigation thing was that the reason that rule was in place was so that all of the really big rich teams couldn't just cherry pick the talented runners from the small teams. <laughs> um, and that as soon as they got rid of the rule, that's 100% what's happened. Um, so like I work with one coach who's on a very like uh, low level team, who's the kind of team that like they're on the cusp of making the national championships. Like maybe they'll make the grade, maybe they won't. And every time he develops somebody who runs, you know, like 28, 15 or better for 10,000 meter. Yeah. A, a better team offers them more yeah. money and go there. So that's, that, that was why the rule was in place originally. But, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a period of change right now in a lot of ways for the corporate team system, just because of these kinds of things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Fascinating. Super interesting. All right, Brett, we're pushing up on the hour mark and I know your voice needs a break. So we're just going to give you one more question. (laughs) Um, And we appreciate you spending so much time for with us here. Um, Can you tell us who are the two or three uh, Japanese up and coming runners that we should kind of keep an eye on? Um, Who are the people that that, that you're excited to see um, what they're going to do next and, and, and why? Um. I met a few of the junior runners I mentioned, um, like uh, uh, on the women's side, um, Sarah Fua, I guess she's not a junior anymore, but still in college. Um, Sarah Fua it has like enormous potential, I think, uh, on the track. Um, the, 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 the kind of sad thing about her was uh, at, right at the end of her freshman year, she got an Achilles tendon injury and has been kind of struggling to make a comeback from that. She's like kind of come back to racing once or twice and then vanished again. So if she makes a comeback, I think she's very high potential. Um, this junior high school uh, runner I mentioned, Sherry Drury, has uh, a lot of potential as well, like transformational um, uh, potential, I think. Um, on the men's side, there are a couple of, or a, a number of really good young juniors. So um, Kate Sato, who's the, uh, he's just finishing his uh, first year at Komazawa University. Um, He's the 1500, 3000, and 5000 meter junior national record holder. You know, three, 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 337 in high school at age 18, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. 13, 22, you know, just, and uh, uh, Hiroto Yoshioka um, is another really talented junior. He was the guy in the junior race at world cross who blacked out on the finish line i don't know if you saw that oh yeah yeah he's the high school 5000 meter record holder so he ran 1322 in high school and didn't break the other guy's out those junior record but broke his high school record 
Mm-hmm. So like these guys, and like I was saying, these, these are guys who basically are, are young athletes who started off in the super shoes mm-hmm. and they're just doing amazing things. And, uh, and yeah, I think if I were, if I were going to say four people I'm, I'm most excited about right now, um, that would be it. So Fua, Drury, um, Sato and Yoshioka. Very cool. Um, cool. thing about the thing about Drury that I have a, a little bit, I mean, I mean, kind of a hard position in relation to her is uh, she has a Canadian father and Japanese mother. And uh, <laughs> I, my understanding is she has dual citizenship and oh, uh, you know, she's, she's running in Japan. Um, and, you know, as a, as a Canadian, um, I'd, I'd be <laughs> pretty happy to see her decide to run for Canada instead. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, but if she's not going to run for Canada, she's going to run for Japan, and you're probably okay with that too. (laughs) But like, yeah, there's definitely uh, you know mixed loyalties at at play for me. Um, Absolutely, understandably, understandably. Brett, this was fantastic. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed this, and I appreciate you spending so much time with us. Yeah, no, my my pleasure. Um, I'm always happy to uh, to talk about this kind of stuff. So thanks for having me on. And again, apologies, this is not my normal voice. <laughs> okay. No yeah, worries, I really. No I'll worries. just. I Brett, just a, maybe a year or two ago, I deleted my entire Twitter feed and I went through and just refollowed. Like, what are the the top things that come to mind? Um, Japan Running News was, you know, yeah. one of the top five for me. So. I oh, really thanks very much. Appreciate love following. Um, so. Thanks. Very good. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, Brett. Yep. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast, on Twitter at pleasant podcast, on Instagram at most pleasant exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Be sure to share us with your friends. We're brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com. Their Twitter is at itlcoaching, and their Facebook group is facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. You can find them on Instagram at itlcoaching. We're also proud to be sponsored by Elemental Altitude, Atlanta's best and only altitude training facility. You can find them at ElementalAltitude.com, on Instagram at ElementalAltitude, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ElementalAltitude. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at BluePineappleTravel.com, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BluePineappleTravel, or on Instagram at BluePineappleTravel. And finally, High Echelon. You can find High Echelon at HighEchelonCPA.com. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We'll see you next time.